The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar three times. Maybe it's time you switch to Red. And for Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne and delivering Australia-wide, princewinestore.com.au. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkins. And welcome along to a little winter best of episode here on Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm producer Jane Neild and Caro, Corey and I are having a little break this week, back with a new episode next week. In the meantime, we're heading back to winter's past to bring you the best of BSF to see what Caro and Corey were reading and watching and cooking up in the kitchen. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And of course, thanks to our sponsor, Red Energy. Yes, awarded Australia's most trusted energy providers by CanStar three times and Prince Wine Store. You can head to their website, princewinestore.com.au. Don't forget, dear Caro and Corey is back. So we'd love your questions, your dilemmas sent to us for dear Caro and Corey. You can do that via the email feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au and each week we have a wonderful little gift pack from our friends at Ello Botanicals so get us your questions. Carol and Corey might just answer those dilemmas and you could be a winner of that wonderful Ello Botanicals prize pack. So enjoy the best of BSF from winter's past here on Don't Shoot the Messenger. And I'm going to kick it off with a book I think that you would enjoy. It looks amazing. This is the true story of the sister of um, Christian Dior, the famous fashion designer. It is called Miss Dior and it is by Justine Picardi, who is a London-based fashion journalist and author of several books. And this is the story of Catherine, who was the much younger sister of Christian Dior. For people who are thinking, mm, Christian Dior rings a bell, have you ever heard of the new look, everyone? I want you to just imagine, I can only think of somebody of the shape of Audrey Hepburn with a very tight torso top of the dress. And then at the hips, it goes right out almost into a big A-line. In 1947, this new style dress called the the new look hit the London and Paris fashion scenes because everybody of course over there was coming out of World War II and so desperate for something that was feminine and a bit frivolous. These were beautiful dresses. Christian Dior was a young French fashion designer who all of a sudden was uh, fame and fortune was his after designing and creating this beautiful look. His sister Catherine had had a really tough time during the war. While Christian Dior was working in his salon, she became a member of the resistance in Paris. She was arrested in July 1944 by the Germans. She was brutally tortured, and there's a bit of quite a bit of that in this wonderful book, and she was deported, Caro, to Ravensbrück concentration camp, which was where most, mostly women were sent, a terrible place. She survived, thankfully, and went back to Paris in May 1945. She escaped death by, I mean, that again is an interesting story, part of this, but she was so emaciated, she was so thin and so 
uh, in shock. Her brother didn't recognise her when he first saw her. She couldn't um, she couldn't eat the dinner that he'd cooked for her. It was it really brought them close together. And because their parents and grandparents had had uh, orchards and flower farms and so on, she went to live in the country and she started growing roses and she became a rose grower. And she is responsible for Miss Dior. Perfume. Correct. It was her roses that did it. It's a really lovely brother and sister story. And so often he is the hero of a lot of uh, French fashion stories. In this case, it's Catherine's story. I really recommend it. It's it's beautifully written. A bit flowery at times, pardon the pun, because it's a book about rose growing. But, but that's Justine's way of writing. I really enjoyed it. It's a great winter escape. Um, I must say, after Christian Dior died rather somewhat prematurely, actually, I think he was only in his 40s. Catherine Dior lived on, uh, he died in 1957. And she became the honorary president of the Christian Dior Museum. And she died in 2008 at the age of 90. So, Wow, I didn't realise she'd lived so much longer than her brother. Yeah, and she really kept the flame alive and did a lot for the brand, I would suggest. So if you love fashion, if you love a good biography, this is the one. Has it got pictures? Yes, it has got pictures. Lots of pictures. I mean, you know, it's nice to have the odd snap, isn't it? Just especially of the dresses. Oh, Corrie, that's a good one. I've never heard of that. Did you come up, come upon that in a bookshop in Ballarat? No, I didn't. No, this was sent to me a few months ago. This actually came out at the end of last year, but it had been sitting on the bookshelf and I thought, well, if I'm going to Ballarat, I will take it in my handbag. And I did. And I enjoyed it. Now, Kara, on to screen, I have seen Elvis, but I want to hear, first of all, what you have seen. Oh, well, look, I, I should have gone to see Elvis, but again, Corrie, when I went to see it on Sunday, it, the cinema was booked out because, you know, as we know, everybody's out and about. So I went and saw a wonderful French film, which received four and a half stars the same weekend that um, Elvis did, certainly in the reviews I read, called Lost Illusions. This is a fabulous film. It swept the pool at the um, Césars, are they? The French Césars, yes. French Film Awards. It is based on a 19th century novel by Balzac, but it's a modern story. It's a story of um, a young provincial poet who goes to live in Paris trying to sell his poems. He goes with his very... or he goes with his mistress, who is um, a wealthy woman... Um, a patron of the arts, married to a much older man, and who is, a, you know, an up a, a member of society, which he is not. And it's basically the story of corruption, lost illusions. Um, the acting is absolutely flawless. Cecile de France, who is absolutely beautiful, is wonderful in it. And the young Benjamin Voisin, who is um, in a few, I think they made this in 2019, and he was very young. Gerard Depardieu gets a gig. Oh. It, it's it's basically Sorry, about... It's, it's not a French film, either he or Catherine Deneuve. Or it, it's about influences. It's a, it's, oh, wow. It's about the media and it's about PR and the way it went down in the very, very corrupt city of Paris in the 19th century. And it's about how a young, idealistic man who comes from very humble beginnings and a bit of a tragic background, a father he loathed and a mother who had... Um, was more up and about in society and whose name he's trying to adopt, not his father's, um, and about how he becomes corrupted. It's about how theatre reviews, um, food reviews, um, 
acting performances, books, literary reviews are corrupted and sold to the highest bidder for a good review. And um, Gerard Depardieu plays a fairly... Um, nasty, but not as nasty as some of the characters' um, newspaper editor. Is, has he lost a bit of weight? No, not in this film. Okay. Not in 2019. It Look, it is, um, although um, my mother and sister and aunt went the other day to see, um, oh, what's the name? He's a French detective, and it's another movie on at the Como Cinema at the moment. It'll, not, not Poirot. No, no. but the, the French Poirot. Ma- Magret. Magret. Yeah, yeah. Magret. Yeah, he plays Magret, and I think he has lost a bit of weight for that one, for that one. Rowan Atkinson, of course, is in um, the TV version. This is a, a very a fascinating film. It's quite long. Could probably use a 10, 15-minute edit, but I sat there fascinated by the whole thing, by the performances, by Paris in the 1900s, by the corruption, and um, it's sort of it's the monarchists, <laughs> the royalists, I should say, versus the so-called Republicans, but about how no one really believes in anything. It's all sold to the highest bidder. It's a very good statement on life today. And, and, um, and nice costumes. Oh, incredible. Incredible. And um, it also it, about the Parisian theatre scene at the time. So I would give Lost Illusions every one of those four and a half stars that I think David Stratton gave it. And it's a wonderful, wonderful film. So um, that's my recommendation. But I want to hear about Baz Luhrmann. Is it as good as people are saying? Yeah, well, I'm really tempted to wait and have this conversation with you when you've seen it, but I, I can't resist because it's everywhere and deservedly so, receiving fabulous praise universally. Some people have uh, been quite critical. Some critics <coughs> have been uh, have have alluded to the fact that uh, it is too long that. Baz has lost his way a bit. What started off as quite focused about the drive of Elvis Presley, which is so interesting in itself. I'll talk about that in a second. It becomes too much the story of Colonel Tom Parker, who was his Svengali, if you like, his manager for many years. Turned out after Elvis's death to be a complete phony. He'd never been in the army. He was from Holland. The reason he never encouraged Elvis to to tour overseas, which Elvis never did, was because Colonel Tom was too afraid of losing control. He knew he couldn't leave the country because he wouldn't be allowed to come back in because he didn't have a passport. So all of that is is, is all those ridiculous films he made him make. Oh. I mean, maybe one or two, but seriously, it's such a pity that it is, he wasted it is, talent. It's so incredible. But I think at the heart of this movie, there are two things that work for me. One is the amazing, amazing performance uh, by. Um, Austin Butler, who plays Elvis Presley. He is he is a profoundly important talent. He is not just a one-trick pony. This is not just the one movie that will make him. He will go on and do amazing work. The second part of it, Caro, is this this sort of setup at the beginning, which I really love the way Baz Luhrmann, who's, who co-wrote the script, has taken this story. Uh, Elvis Presley was from a poor white family living in a black ghetto area and he was deeply influenced his fr- his friends were african americans he was deeply influenced by their culture and there's this amazing scene of him hearing one day somebody playing the blues in a shed and then beyond the shed is the black i presume back baptist church and he can hear this amazing gospel music and he wanders down to the church finds himself inside it and there's the clapping the humming, the thanking the Lord, 
the amazing female voices and he just finds himself completely uplifted and his body starts gyrating and that's the famous gyration. So when he then performs in a carnival atmosphere with his guitar playing this kind of music and he starts gyrating on stage, it's, he, it's him channeling black blues music and that's what the authorities in 1950s conservative America cannot stand. They cannot abide the fact that, of course, the teenage girls are going nuts for this. The boys think he's a sissy, but but they love his music. But the authorities are so determined to shut him down, and there are a couple of great scenes where this becomes a bit of a climax. So that part of the story was great for me because, like you... When we were growing up, Elvis was in his twilight years, and we just remember him as. Well, I I grew up with watching those the mo- Vegas shows, yeah. and, and I, Aloha from Hawaii. Yeah. But that, that was a great concert. But that movie, um, Viva Las Vegas, which I still love with Anne Margaret. But we I grew up on a diet of those on Saturday afternoon television. Those movies would be replayed, and yes, the the Hawaiian special and. Elvis being overweight and sweaty and still had that fantastic, amazing voice. But to see this film, it gave me a whole new appreciation of how brave he was, how ambitious in a good way he was. He wanted to really pull his mum and dad, mum an alcoholic, dad a hopeless businessman who'd been jailed for a brief time, pull them out of the ghetto, put them into Graceland, had all his cousins, you know, very generous with all that sort of thing, deeply in love with Priscilla Presley. Now, no wonder she's given the thumbs up to Baz Luhrmann's film because she comes out of this film very well. But it's just such an interesting story. She's played story. by an Aussie actress, isn't she? An Aussie actor. Um, she's played by um, Olivia de Jong is her name. Richard Roxburgh play, superbly plays um, Elvis's father, who is a real no-hoper and very weak um, and has no courage standing up to Colonel Tom Parker in the latter years when Elvis is hitting the pills and the booze. But the Colonel Tom Parker story is is sort of interesting, and I'll, I'll just let that sit there for a moment. Suffice to say that Tom Hanks gives it his all, lots of prosthetics around the chin and the jowls and the tummy and all of that sort of stuff. There's still a bit of the Forrest Gump inside there, though. <laughs> it's hard to not, you know, and it's hard to look at Tom Hanks as a bad guy because Colonel Tom Parker in this film does not come off well at all and he is the centre of the story. He he is the storyteller. He's the device. Yeah, he sees him early on and yeah, sees the yeah, dollar signs. Yeah. And that's all he's interested in. But it needs a bit of an edit. I would suggest, you know, like your film, you probably need to cut 10 or 15 or 20 minutes. But having said that, the the costumes of Baz Luhrmann's wife, uh, Catherine Martin, are amazing. The music... Uh, is just fantastic the way Elliot Wheeler, who's an Australian, remember when you and I went and saw Moulin Rouge and there's that great scene where they sing Roxanne by the police in that slow Spanish tango kind of style and you and I just looked at each other in the theatre and went, oh, my God, what an amazing way, an amazing twist on a classic. Well, that happens a lot, and I think full full credit to Elliot Wheeler, who was in charge of the music. Really good film, probably one of the best films I'll see this year, and that's Elvis. And can we hear your view next time? You you know, hopefully next week or whenever we see you next. No, I'm I'm really really looking forward to seeing it. I mean, there's so many good films on at the moment. I think we should all get back to the cinema. So, Caro, on to recipes. Have to say, I'm not a huge fan of Brussels sprouts, although I have. I, you know our friend and slave Joe, 
she put me onto this a couple of years ago. You peel the little leaves off a raw Brussels sprout, stick it in the oven with some oil on it and toast them up and then put them on top of a salad. Oh, yum. I think they're fabulous vegetables and I hated them as a child like everyone else. But of course, none of our parents knew how to, our mothers knew really how to cook them except to boil the Christ out of them and oh, yuck. And serve them grey. However, this is from um, Alice Zaslavsky's book, um, that wonderful book in praise of veg, A Modern Kitchen Companion. It's a great book. I've inherited it from um, previously mentioned, aforementioned son and partner who are moving overseas and have left me a couple of their cookbooks. So I thought I'd have a crack at the Brussels sprouts last week, not really because beans were so expensive and iceberg lettuces of $12, but because it looks so yummy, Corrie. So this is so easy. You actually marinate the Brussels sprouts. And I did it for actually an hour or two before I put them in the oven. Do you cut them in half? You cut them in half and trim the bottom bit off. And you marinate them in a mixture of light soy, honey, caraway seeds, garlic. Um, I think there's a bit of peanut oil in there too. This is an absolutely delicious recipe. And after you've, it's in a a reasonable amount of marinade. The other trick to this recipe is you cook them for 10 minutes in a really, really, really hot oven. Um, I think about 220. And you actually heat up the pan in the oven. You take it out once the once the oven's you know got to its required heat. It's best to lay baking paper down. I mean, if you want them super crunchy, don't. But if you want a lot of cleaning up afterwards, do um, don't use the baking paper. I should say. And remember to crunch up your baking paper. Well, I crunch didn't. up and wet and wet and. Well, no, I I just took took the really 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 hot tray out of the oven quickly laid down the baking paper and you lay the Brussels sprouts sort of cut side down in the marinade in the oven 10 minutes that's all it needs take them out and chuck them in a serving dish and top them with I think it's um, a couple of tablespoons of peanut oil a bit of chopped red chili that's optional and chopped roasted peanuts Oh, yum. It is absolutely delicious. It's a meal in itself and it's a great side. And I think I used about, I think they say about a kilo of Brussels sprouts serves four people if you're using it as a main dish. But I did um, a little bit more than that and um, served a few extra people and it was delicious. And they were great the next day. And we're serving it with what sort of protein? Well, I served it with Ossobuco (laughs) yet again. But, I mean, that'd be brilliant with a roast. I mean, with a roast Mm. chicken, that'd be absolutely fantastic. Oh, yeah, I like that recipe. That'd also be really good with, um, you know, a a solid sort of fish or they'd be really good with any sort of, um, I mean, they'd be great with steak. And where did you find this recipe? In, in Alice's, Alice's book. book, which is a wonderful book. And it's not all vegetarian, even though it's called In Praise of Vegetables. It work, It tells you how to serve vegetables with meat as well, which is why I liked it, because I'm not a vegetarian. I'd be happy vegetarians would love it. But, um, yeah, her name is Alice Zaslavsky, and she's wonderful. And she used to be on MasterChef. <gasps> Some great years recipes and years ago. That. Well, that is a great recipe, and that was our little BSF segment. Thank you, Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806? You have a book, Corrie, and please get the title right, can you? <laughs> it's called Jesus Town, One Word, a novel oh, by Paul, Paul Daly's Daly. new book. Mm. 
Would you like to tell Potties how we know Paul Daly? We worked with him on the Sunday Age many years ago. He was a young gun reporter climbing the ladder, I suppose, as we all were back then, and he became a, a real gun political reporter. Yeah, he went and worked for Time Australia and now he... and, and other various other news organisations and now is a contributor to The Guardian and he also is the author of several fiction and non-fiction books and this is his new novel and Carol, I think Paul, our friend, shows enormous courage with this subject matter. It is a tough issue. It's a tough gig when white fellow writers take on black Australia and this is what Paul has done. This is a um, he has captured the beautiful land and the politics of the land, First Nations, 60,000 years of history, and white man's attempts to dismiss it, to destroy it, to plunder it, and all of the tragic ch chapters of the history, the massacres, the murders, the rapes, the children stolen, the alcoholism, uh, the damaged people, all of this uh, makes an appearance in this uh this big issue, but incredibly enjoyable novel. What does and I, Jesus Town mean? It's it's a it's a former missionary town in the top end, and this is where the action takes place. So all of these issues are swirling around. But what I love about this book is that there's a very strong narrative, and it's the story of populist historian Patrick Renmark. Now, Patrick, as I'm reading about Patrick Renmark, who was Melbourne-born but fled to London became a writer and became a bit of the, um, if you think of Peter Fitzsimons, that sort of historian, so a populist mm -hmm. historian, yep. taking stories of the past and turning them into best-selling books. He becomes a best-selling author, but there's a sense that he's never achieved his true scholarly self or found himself. Um, he is uh, he's living the life in London, has a wife, a child, a mistress, of course, who's much younger, who happens to work in the university library. So there's, a, of course, there's a lot of snogging and shagging that goes on in, in the bookshelves. <laughs> but a series of tragic events befall Patrick, and in a haze of pills and booze, he realises he has to fulfil a publisher's commission, which is to write a book about his grandfather, Nathaniel. Nathaniel Renmark was a 20th century anthropologist and adventurer, and he became famous because he um, left Melbourne, went up to the top end, and over a series of decades in the 20th century, from the 1920s, 30s onward, studied and lived with Indigenous communities. So here we have Patrick battling his own demons in the tumble-down shack in Jesus Town, which belonged to his grandfather. And his grandfather's story, his grandfather's story unfolds and indeed unravels. Could it be that this, um, could this be the greatest story that Patrick has ever told, the true story of old Rennie's story? Does he have the courage to write the true story about his grandfather? And can he face the truths that haven't um, been, have, haven't come out yet? So I think this is a really important book. I think Paul will probably receive a bit of a backlash from people who say that white writers insert themselves sometimes inappropriately into uh, blackfella stories. I don't agree with that. I think 
given, particularly given Paul's experiences writing on Indigenous issues for The Guardian over many years, the fact that he's travelled to the area. I mean, the land around this this um, Jesus town, which is a mythical place, but it's so evocative of Northern Australia. I, I think he really pays homage to the... Um, to the communities and and communities where the things that matter are respect and family and love and that's what kind of gets you through. There's a little bit of humour in it um, and I just think it's a really great book for book clubs in particular and for readers who love these sorts of meaty issues uh, where there's a really strong narrative which is climactic and you're on the edge of your seat toward the end of the book. I think it's done a fantastic job. So that's Jesus Town by Paul Daly. And can I just add that we are having an event with Paul if any potties would like to come. Um, it's on Wednesday the 13th of July, 6 o'clock till 7 o'clock at Cafe Latte Upstairs, which is in Hawksburn. And I think, Miss Jane, you're going to put on – she's nodding, yeah. She's going to put on the try booking thing. So if you'd like to come and meet me, meet Paul, and have a listen um, to him talk about the book and other big and important issues as well to do with Indigenous communities, um, join us. So that's Jesus Town, Caro. Sounds fantastic. It is now time to talk screen and – I have completely, I confess, binged the split series three of the tales of the Defoe family. Mm, what I did, a family. I did too, Caro. Have I you finished, finished it? Yeah, I finished oh. episode six last night. And I've just found out that that's it. There's no more, which mm. is disappointing because it's not all completely resolved, is it? We won't say, anyway, let's talk about the story. The no, Def- let's not give too much away. Well, the, we'll talk about Do the, the setup. The premise. So... Basically, this is a story of the three Defoe sisters and it, their mother. And it premiered in 2016. So if you haven't seen series one or two, it's on iView. And it stars Nicola Walker, <coughs> who's also from Last Tango in Halifax and a couple of British cop shows. She's sort of one of the it girls at the moment, it women of the new um, new sort of order of British drama. She is the main character. And series three focuses on the process of her divorce with her husband. Or will she get divorced? Will she or won't she? Of course, there's another man on the scene. He's living in New York. He's been in the series before. Um, She has two sisters, Rose, the baby, who um, becomes a major part of this story. Well, both sisters really become a major part of the storyline. The real difference for me in this series is that... um, the mother, who was such a, you know, tough as old boots and really horrible character who did some dreadful things to her daughters. The first series, of course, focuses on the return, the long lost return of their father who disappeared when the girls were little. The mother is not a nice character. By series three, she has her own podcast. She is also a very, very successful lawyer and she has a podcast on divorce, which um, drives everyone nuts. But she's much nicer. She is. She's softened and, and she's played brilliantly by Deborah Findlay, who people will know Deborah's face from uh, from BBC dramas over the years. But she really is given a very strong role in um, in in this show, particularly series three, as you say. Duckface returns, Caro, as the lawyer who is handling um, the divorce. Um, Nathan, he's Nathan's, you know, the husband's divorce lawyer. 
Um, you and, find- and a chancellor. So Anna Chancellor, we say duck face because that's how we remember her from four weddings and a funeral. She was the one who uh, Hugh Grant stood up at the aisle, but um, at the church. But uh, she plays a fantastic character in this. Absolutely brilliant. The other thing is that um, you find out very, very early in the first episode that Nathan has a girlfriend. He, yeah, well, we won't say what happens there. But look, the children become a big part of the story. I think Nicola Walker is a, has real appeal as an actor, but I think he overacts a bit in this series. But I just couldn't stop watching and it made me cry. I, yeah. I cried a lot. In fact, well, I cried in the last episode. As I was saying to Miss Jane before you arrived at the studio today, I remain convinced that anybody who's ever experienced a divorce or a relationship breakup where children are involved or had a partner who's cheated on them, will find the split very uncomfortable viewing, (laughs) very disturbing and lots and lots of tears. And for me, it always starts actually with the theme music at the beginning, those three golden-headed children. So I'm a basket case before the thing's begun. Which is, is, if you watch the first series, the premise is that that family film was made the weekend before the father nicked off. That's right. With the nanny and That's went right. to live in um, So it's sort of early or 70s or mid-70s and oh, these three gorgeous little girls. But series three further explores the ties that bind us and um, and it reminds me of um, one of my favourite films with the kids, Mrs Doubtfire, 100 years ago, Robin Williams playing Mrs Doubtfire. And uh, at the end of the at the end of the film, Mrs Doubtfire talks to camera and says, people come in all families come in all different shapes and sizes and has a lovely dissertation on what family is and I think that's where we land with the split. But yes, quite uncomfortable viewing, Caro. Lots and lots of tears over the weekend. Yeah, no, it's 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 a it was a great premise for a series and because not every thread is completed, you just wonder, um, What's going to happen? But anyway, I would definitely... It's on ABC iView. It's also on the ABC on Sunday nights after... Um, oh, what's that? Um, the Good Karma Hospital, which I sort of get sucked into occasionally. No, no. I can't, I can't watch The Good Karma <laughs> I've Hospital. I've done The Good Karma. I'll, I'll do beyond that. I'll do any Brit sort of show. But no, I've really enjoyed it. Can I, I really, just also... Really can it. I also use this moment just to... Because we are also a document of record, our podcast, to just... Vale Lee Sales, what a great job she did hosting for so many years, the 7.30, as it's now known. And I found her final episode last week, and particularly the tribute on Friday night, really compelling viewing the the tribute. Uh, I think that's probably up on ABC iView if you want to see some of Lee Sales' great and funnier and one, more wonderful moments. It's very good tribute. I mean, it, you did sort of think, I mean, how long did she host for, 11 uh, years? 11 years, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was a... Yeah, well, I don't really understand. First of all, I mean, she's not retiring. Surely she's too young to be going off no, into the ether. No, she's like friends. She'll pop up again somewhere. Friends now yes. on daytime TV. Yeah. What are you saying? She didn't. It was a bit of an overkill. Oh, I thought it was. <laughs> and you know, I'm the biggest you... Lee Sales fan of all. I think he's wonderful. Are you shooting Bambi? No, I. I love Lee Sales. I think he's done some of the great, I mean, some of the groundbreaking interviews. And, you know, as a sports person, he comes in and does sport as well as anyone. But I thought, gee, by Friday night, I'm like, I mean, you know, oh. he's, not, he's not going away forever. Anyway. Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, oh, I'm just moving on to congratulations, Sarah Ferguson, for getting the greatest job in TV. And I thought your premiere on Monday night was terrific. And your her interview with the... Uh, 
the acting Prime Minister, I should say, Richard Miles, the Minister for Defence, was terrific. So uh, we're in good hands with Sarah. Now, you have chicken recipe. I do. I do. Um, I found myself on Sunday night, or last week, I should say, with you know, a lot of pantry leftovers that I needed to finish, a few potatoes that were probably two days away from the bin. And I had chicken thigh fillets in the freezer, Corrie. Um, the chicken chops, as we call them, skin on, bone in. The best, Be- yeah, the best part of a best chicken way if you're cook cooking. Chicken. Yep. And I had a huge thing of dry oregano and also fresh oregano and rosemary in the garden and lots of lemons from my tree. So what did I do? But I just went to Mr. A lemon chicken. <laughs> I went to Mr. Google because we've all got a thousand different varieties of this. This came up on all recipes. It was beautiful. What do you mean it came up on all recipes? All recipes is the name of a website. Oh, allrecipes.com or something. Yes. Okay. And Miss Jane's going to put it on the show notes. I've just sent it to her. This takes 10 minutes to prepare, 50 minutes to cook. It um, it serves four in the um, in the quantities I'm giving. Basically, you get your chicken bone-in thickened chicken thighs and you chuck them into a marinade, which includes the potatoes, which you've peeled and quartered, lemon juice, olive oil, garlic, the dried oregano, salt, rosemary, black pepper and cayenne. Just a pinch of cayenne pepper. You toss the lot, Corrie, in a great big bowl, including the potatoes, with all that stuff. Yum. And the quantities are, I think it's about half a cup of olive oil and half a cup of lemon juice, to give you an idea. Then the oven, you turn on to absolutely flat out. I think it's um, 220 you turn it on to. Once it reaches 220, you place the chicken skin side up in the oven and just nestle in the potatoes, pour over the marinade. Yum. Then you drizzle it with two-thirds of a cup of chicken stock. Now, I didn't have chicken stock, and I couldn't even find any chicken stock cubes, so I just boiled up the leftover chicken chops and gave um, the leftover chicken bits to Queenie the next day. So you pour oh. the chicken broth. Oh, can I just say, no wonder your dog goes to the toilet frequently in the park when we go walking. Dogs love chicken. <laughs> I didn't give her the bones. Anyway, you pour the chicken stock also over the chicken. So it's quite a wet sort of recipe. Put it in the oven for 20 minutes. Then you toss it all around, you know, again, and then you put the chicken back skin side up and you put it in for another 25 minutes. So, you know, the chicken is now brown. Delicious. So you're cooking it a bit like a chicken cacciatore, except it's slight, it's, it has the lemon and oregano. Yeah, but I, I always do chicken cacciatore on the top of the stove. Oh, no, I don't. Oh, well, well, you know that wonderful recipe I love that I have yes. with the chickpeas. Yeah, no, that, that is delicious. Anyway, what you do um, after the 45 minutes is up is you take the chicken out. Now, this recipe says to put the potatoes back in and brown them, but I think they're all beautiful and waxy and brown enough. So you take out the, all the chicken, all the potatoes, you leave in all the rest of the marinade, which is in there with the chicken stock, and it's obviously reduced a bit. You add another third of a cup of chicken stock, put it on top of the oven, on top of the stove, and stir it around and just let it reduce a bit. Yum. And then you just put the chicken and the potatoes on a plate and you pour over all the lovely gluggy, lemony mixture and chicken stock mixture. So um, You could you, even put a bit of gremolata or something on the top if you were showing off. You could. You, you're actually meant to just garnish it with fresh oregano, which I think we did. And we had leftover silver beet too, so we served it with a lemon silver beet recipe. It 
is delicious. It was something, there was the, the I don't know, I, the, something about the way you cook the potatoes in mm. the stock with the lemon juice, bit of olive oil, the cayenne, it is just delicious. You're talking, cheap... you're talking to somebody who hasn't had breakfast here and who's high on heaps normal. <laughs> a cheap and reliable meal, Corrie. I can um, recommend it. It'll Starving. be on our show Yum. So that was BSF for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Switch to Aussie-owned Red Energy. And now, of course, we're off to BSF, the land of books, screen and food. The happiest kingdom of them all. And this segment is presented by our friends at Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy, Caro. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131806? Take it away. I imagine being on holiday, you would have read a couple of great books. I have, and a lot of them were picked up um I have to admit, at various hotels and along the way, and then other ones were left behind. Um, I did do a couple of really trashy, fun ones. but and, and this, the one I'm going to talk about, Malibu Rising, is a classic beach read, and it was just so enjoyable. I gather the people who made Little Fires Everywhere are making it into a mini-series. Um, it's by Taylor Jenkins Reid, who wrote Daisy Jones and the Six. That's right. One of my favourite books yeah, of a few and, years and ago. And in fact, Anna, Anna talked about Daisy Jones, I think, when Many she was years on about ago. three years ago. Yeah, yeah. Even longer, I reckon. Yeah. So this one um, was written by Taylor Jenkins Reid in 2021. It is a story of, like Daisy Jones and the Six, which sort of could have been a bit about Fleetwood Mac, it's told, it's an historical perspective told in the present day and in the past. It's about a family, a very well-known family who come from Malibu, the, the Reaver family. And the father, the patriarch, who is a very, very bad father, is a famous singer, rock and roll, rock star, sort of think, um, um, you know, Liv Tyler's father. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Steve from Aerosmith. Steve Smith. Tyler from Aerosmith. And Gee, think, she's fast this morning. And the eldest daughter. Good on you, Jane. The eldest daughter, Nina, could almost be Liv Tyler, although she's not an actor. He's a swimsuit model and a surfer. They're a family of surfers who grew up in Malibu, a fascinating family <laughs> history. Um, it's a really interesting story about Malibu and what Malibu was like in the 1950s before it was discovered and when it was just a beautiful sort of surfy enclave, not even became a surfy enclave, but just um, a few a few local sort of fish shops, um, fish restaurants, but very daggy. Um, and then it became, of course, the Malibu that we know today. Every year, Nina Reaver, who has three siblings, holds a big party. Um, the party was in the lovely sort of shack she had by the sea. She's now, through her marriage to a famous tennis player, she's now got an incredible house on a cliff, which she didn't really want. She wanted to stay by the sea in a shack. She didn't want to be looking down onto the ocean. She wanted to be at the ocean. But she has this party Sounds every like year. Sounds Bay. It gets Doesn't more it? and it does it is a bit gets more and more out of hand every year and on this particular night all the family history crashes into each other. There are four siblings, Nina's the oldest, there are then two boys and a girl. 
they're not all full siblings and you learn about that as the story goes on and they're not all who they think who you think they are it is fascinating you can't put it down i found it in rome airport because i'd just run out of things to read at the bookshop they didn't have many english speaking books and most of them i'd read or they were just too trashy but i really recommend malibu rising by taylor jenkins reed so there you go with its beautiful pink cover and you're on a roll so tell us about what you've been watching well I saw a beautiful movie and um, it was one that came on at the cinema last year, but um, I never actually went and saw it. It stars um, Wacom Phoenix and it's called Come On, Come On. And it's a story of a sort of an emotionally, not immature, sort of stunted bloke who travels around America this is Phoenix himself, making, um, um, interviewing children and teenagers about the way they see themselves in the world, on the planet, sort of climate change, alienation, etc. And he interviews all these kids, but he has no real family of his own. But he does have a sister. She is brilliantly played by Gabby Hoffman. And you sort of think she's a single mother. She's bringing up her son, Jesse, on her own. And she is... Um, He's sort of separated, married to, but doesn't always live with her partner who um, clearly has some mental health issues. And he has a particularly bad episode. He's a musician and she has to go and be with him. And she calls on Wacom Phoenix to come and help out with her boy. And it's just a story of this man who has no real not many close people in his life at so all. So talks to people about their intimate relationships and, and, and their, their connections and, feelings, and their thoughts, but doesn't young ever people, re- reveal himself. And doesn't really have a relationship mm. with young people. Has not seen his nephew, Jesse, for over a year. Moves into their house in LA and has to go to New York where he lives. And um, his sister doesn't want him to do that. She wants him to, but she has to stay with her partner who's getting worse and worse and quite unhinged and ends up has to, having to be institutionalised again, doesn't want her to leave him. Then um, the interviews continue. They have an opportunity to go to New Orleans and do more interviews and he takes Jesse with him to New Orleans. It's just, it's sort part road trip, part family saga, just beautiful observation of a man who comes to life again mm-hmm. through a, a very unusual um, boy who I think it was probably 9, 10, 11 years it's old. It's a well-worn theme, that, isn't it? Thinking it's, about Hugh Grant uh, in, in that wonderful Nick Hornby movie. Yes, it's about, a boy, a, boy. about a boy. Yep. There, there's, uh, there's a bit of about a boy, but it's less soapy. It's more, it's, it's black and white. It's, the shots of New York are just absolutely wonderful. It's definitely a drama. Um both Clem, Brendan and I all individually watched it on planes on the way home. Brendan found it a bit depressing. Clem absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. The um, oh, the boy who plays Jesse, Woody Norman, just steals the show. I mean, people always say that. It's about like that kid in Jerry Maguire. The kid who softens yeah. Tom Cruise's heart. But this is, um, it's fair, it's almost shot documentary style. It's just beautifully done. Wacom Phoenix is really good in it. But Gabby Hoffman is brilliant. She's beautiful in a very unusual way. And Woody Norman's brilliant. So I would recommend Come On, Come On. Corrie, and I think, I don't know if it's still on at the movies. It certainly was earlier this year, but you'll find it on your local streaming service. You've been cooking. 
Yeah, I, a couple of weeks ago, Caro, I cooked I, I cooked this recipe uh, by Beverly Southern Smith. I cook it probably once a year, and every time I cook it, I think, gosh, I should just have that on constant repeat through winter. It is a cake, but it is actually, I think, better as a serve as a pudding if you're having people over for dinner or something like that because it's a bit gooey. It's absolutely delicious. It's Beverly Sutherland Smith's Caramel Pear Cake. And looking, looking at the little, um, when I was uh, not first married, but I suppose I was, um, I think Coco might have been born. I can't remember. I suddenly became very domestic and decided to put all of my recipes on these little cue cards. And I have a box of cue cards and I know exactly those recipes because those cue cards were a certain period in the 90s in my life. So this is from the 1990s and I've copied this out of the age because Beverly Sutherland Smith used to do the Tuesday cooking column. Miss Jane will have it all here, but it's a cup of sugar, a third of a cup of water and three firm pears. Don't get gooey ones thinking, oh, they're going in a cake. Get firm ones because they do soften as cooking. 100 grams of butter, two large eggs, a third of a cup of icing sugar, half a teaspoon of vanilla essence and a cup of self-raising flour. Goes into it, all goes into a 23-centimetre cake tin and into an oven that is heated at 180. So you put the sugar and water in a saucepan, Caro, and warm it gently so the sugar dissolves and it becomes a bit of a syrup. And then you turn the heat up and cook it until it's a caramel colour, lighter rather than gold, because if you go to gold, it can so easily burn. And into the buttered... Um, buttered tin, you swirl it around so that the base is coated with this uh, glaze. You peel and quarter pears, arrange the pears on top of the caramel, then you melt the butter, leave to cool until tepid, beat eggs, beat it with the eggs and the sugar and the vanilla essence until frothy, add the melted butter, the sifted flour over the top, stir it in, blah, blah. It becomes like a bit like a batter and dab all of that over the top of the pears that are in the tin. Try not to disturb them. And the batter will spread out as the cake cooks. So if you think it looks a little uneven around the the, the curve of the pear, don't worry, it will all start in the it'll start doing its magic in the oven. And you bake it for 30 minutes or until the center is set. As soon as it comes out, turn it turn it um, turn it upside down on the plate and the caramel will start to stick to the tin. So be careful about that. And just Look, it's pretty messy. I don't think I've ever done one that looks perfect, like Beverly Sutherland Smith, but you just put cream on. Sounds I always, delicious. I always just drizzle some cream over it and, um, you know, maybe put some flowers or something on the top, but, you know, you get away. I don't know. It just always seems to be a bit of a mess, but put together. It is so delicious and moist, and, of course, now is pear time. Jane it's, will make sense of my little uh, – in fact, Janie, I've – you can't read my handwriting. I'll do it for you. And I did it, as I said, a couple of weeks ago. And why do I not cook this more often? Why don't you cook it for me? At, well, at, um, I will if you you can serve that. You can serve the limoncello. Uh, what did you spritz, call them? Amalfi spritz. The Amalfi spritz. At Tumpton, our last hotel in southern Italy, the nonna, the mother of Luigi, the manager of the hotel, made a different cake for breakfast every day. And we the breakfast oh, was served in this sort of delicious. cave-like room, but there was a beautiful garden. She's so, she's so big, we had to squeeze her through the door today. Please. Oh, this garden, I swear, there was every type of citrus tree. There was nicotiana all through the garden. Remember when we oh, used to all yes. plant nicotiana? And it was yellow and purple. Gosh, there were, that takes me back to the There 70s. were wild blackberries. There were turtles wandering around. And on one day, um, she made a chocolate and pear cake. And it wasn't too sweet. It was... I mean, often there was a coconut cake. He cooked from blackberries and blueberries found in this beautiful garden. There was grapevines in this garden. And um, 
one day, yeah, that, that one day she did a beautiful jam sort of pastry thing. There was such, and you know, you've, at day one you were like, I'm more of a savoury person, don't really want cake for breakfast. Well, by the fourth day, what she made today. Oh, how beautiful. The chocolate and pear we all love so much, she offered to give us extra for afternoon tea. Isn't that a great combo? Pears and chocolate. Oh, gee, I tell beautiful. you what, I'll have to look up a recipe of those. So, Caro, that is BSF uh, for Red Energy. Thanks, Red Energy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell a friend about the show. Perhaps they haven't discovered it yet. You can send us an email to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at don'tshootpod and sign up for our weekly email. We'll send you the show notes straight to your inbox. And of course, thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store.